This sermon I'm giving today is going to be a follow-up about being worthy. But I want, to, I want you to notice something here in Luke 21, 36, because this hasn't been, I think, noticed too well in the past. Luke 21, 36. And it says here, Watch therefore and pray always that ye may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The word here, be counted worthy, in a Greek means to prevail. So you could say, watch therefore and pray always that you may prevail to escape all these things. Now my question today is, or my, or my topic today is, how to prevail. That's what we all want to reach, isn't it? This goal where we are counted worthy to escape whatever comes and to be able to stand before the Son of Man. Notice Luke uh, 13, verse number 24. Luke 13:24. Beginning here in verse number 24, he said, Strive to enter into the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where you are from. Then you begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in the streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you're where you're from. Depart from me, all you that work iniquity. And the word means lawlessness or unrighteousness. Lawlessness means not obeying God's law. So here's the, here's the factor here. These people are going to claim we ate and drank in your presence. So what are they saying? They were people who were affiliated and associated with the truth, and they had contact with God, but he said, I didn't, I didn't know you. So uh, it's, a, I think, a sobering thought when you stop and consider that. And in 1 John 2, verse number 28, this is what we're all aiming for and shooting for. Now, little children, he said, abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him to have confidence so when that day comes we should be able to stand up before God in confidence because we know we've done the right thing now there are certain problems we have with human nature we all have it to one degree or another uh, some more and others less and uh, one man's uh, problem may not be another's but his may be something that the other man uh, doesn't possess. So the first thing I want to point out is what's liable to get in, get in the way is our self-interest. Self-interest. Placing our interests in what we want to do above the Word of God. And if that, if that is a, that can really be a major problem. So I tell you, in this physical life, it's going to all boil down to it sooner or later in, in, uh, in one or more serious matters that we're going to have to make a decision whether God comes first or our interests come first. Philippians 3.19 Philippians 3.19 Here Paul talks about these people and the only thing I'm going to emphasize here is whose God is their belly. That is to say they serve and their interests are just simply physical 
and uh, whatever the, the, the physical amenities of life can grant them. In this case, he just uses it as, a, as an example of the belly. So it shows you that there, here Paul was dealing with people even in his day that, that uh, had to be admonished to, uh, to be aware of that uh, human weakness. Uh, Luke 12, verse number, nine, uh, verse number 19. Luke 12, verse 19. Here's the man who had a bumper crop. And uh, he had all that he desired, and he was satisfied with his lot in life. And he said, I'll say to my good soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. So all our lives are all in the hands of God, plain and simple. And uh, it's just like the example I read in the news section there where this woman was driving down the road with this little two-year-old girl and rolled an SUV and threw the little girl out of the window and she landed in the river and now they can't even find her body. Now I'm quite sure when that lady started down the road, she had no idea something like that would happen. We're all in the hands of God. So that's what he's pointing out here. You better, be, you better be aware of that, and you better make God a very important part of your life and not your own self-interest first. In Matthew 16, verse number 23. Matthew 16, 23. Remember, here's an occasion where, you know, Jesus had the mind of God. And he knew certainly what was in store for him and what was in store for uh, all of humanity eventually. And uh, when he told uh, the disciples that he was going to be killed, you know, then what did Peter do? And his impetuous way began to rebuke him. And he said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. He didn't understand what Christ's purpose was on this earth. And he turned, that is, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. That's what self-interest is. It's being mindful of the things of men rather than the things of God. And uh, human nature being what it is, here's what Paul said in Romans 8, verse number 5. Romans 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's only natural, isn't it? So there's only one thing that can really change that, and that's when we begin to think in a non-natural way. And our minds become imbued with God's spirit and God's power, and then we begin to think more godlike. I don't believe that in this physical life we'll ever meet the standard that Christ did by any means because he was perfect. But uh, there certainly has got to be some, some progress in our lives as we go through this course in life. John 6, verse number 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, we all have to labor for, for the, the physical bread of life. But what he's emphasizing here is you cannot make that your first and primary interest. Uh, you cannot make this uh, your, your primary and, and, and first interest in life. So uh, if, you, if, you, if, if that is what your life is involved in, you know what it means? 
You're only going to, it's only going to last as long as you live. In fact, as you get older, you probably uh, lose a lot of the verve and vitality of life and the things that you thought were important at one time will, will not be that important to you any longer. And then you'll say to yourself, well, was it really worth it? So that's one of the primary things. One of the primary things that gets in the way of our ability to prevail. Now, secondly, right in conjunction with this, self-will. Self-will. Jeremiah 22, this, was, this has been a proclivity of the people, I guess it's been a proclivity of, of many peoples, but certainly is a proclivity of Israel from the very beginning, from the time they were first given the truth by God, because this is the nature, I guess, of Israelites. And as we, as we read here in Jeremiah 22, verse number 21, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear this has been your manner from your youth, that you did not obey my voice. So from the time, from the very time that Israel began as a nation, they've always had this proclivity just to refuse to hear and set their wills ahead of what God wanted. 1 Samuel 8, verse number 19. 1 Samuel 8, verse number 19. Remember, they wanted a king. And while the biblical account here doesn't relate this, uh, by putting two and two together, the indication is that they wanted a king because they saw this, uh, this Ammonite power, whatever it was over there, rising up, threatening to invade them, and they didn't have enough confidence in God to fight their battle for them, so they wanted a king. And so uh, Samuel said, you're making a big mistake. Here's what you're going to get. And he went down the list of what, what was going to happen to him. And he said, the day is going to come when you're going to cry out and you're going to wish you had never wanted a king. You'll cry out in that day, verse 18, because of the king whom you've chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. It's been the history of Israel from the beginning, hasn't it? Here, Nehemiah said much later when he was giving a summary of what had occurred with ancient Israel, he said this, Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse number 29. We'll read the prophets, they testified against them that uh, you might bring them back to your law. But they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders and stiffened their necks. You ever had a child do that to you? They're poorly like that. And then they don't want to they want to submit. That's the way Israel's been with God. Well, we know the consequences of it. They eventually went into national captivity. The twelve tribes were lost from history, although knowledgeable people knowledgeable people know where they are today. But uh, it just shows you that um, that when human beings don't want God's way, they, they're going to pay the consequences sooner or later. And here he speaks of the, 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 the attitude, this is New Testament attitude he's talking about here, people in, in the time period when Peter was writing this. And he says, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. So it is something to be concerned with. 1 Samuel 15, 23. 1 Samuel 15, verse number 23. 
Here's how God summarizes this attitude of self being self-willed against God and his in his truth. It says here in verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness, someone who's stubborn and self-willed, it is as iniquity and idolatry. That's how God views it. So that's certainly something to be aware of and uh, to recognize that that certainly is an enemy that, that uh, can uh, get in the way of our being able to prevail and uh, to stand before the Son of Man. The third point, self-justification. Self-justification. Always excusing what we do. Now, there's no one on the face of this earth that does not make mistakes. And when we make mistakes, there's one thing we've got to learn in our relationship with God. We better be willing to admit them. As it says in the book of Proverbs, He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So self-justification, it's, it's always making an excuse. It's refusing any correction because we, we can lay the blame somewhere else. We all do it to a certain degree. My wife always accuses me of doing that with her. And uh, what she doesn't realize, of course, is every time I do that, I'm just kidding. Uh, Jeremiah 5 and verse 3. Jeremiah 5 and verse 3. O oh Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock and have refused to return. See, they refuse correction. Jeremiah 7, verse number 28. Jeremiah 7, verse 28. So you shall say to them, for well, here's God's instruction, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God nor receive correction. Now just think back for a moment when this 9-1-1 tragedy occurred and uh, when some leading clerics in this country had the unmitigated gall to say that our sins had brought this upon us. What do you think happened? Old uh, Walter Cronkite got up there and said, those two ministers who got up and said this thing are worse than the terrorists. That's the attitude. Now, when the, when the two witnesses come on the scene and God begins to deal with this nation uh, and, and the world through their hand, do you think they're going to, what do you think the media is going to do? I'll tell you, they're, they're going to receive... Uh, attacks like you can't believe. And of course, as we know, God is not going to permit anything to happen to them until the time comes. And then they'll, they'll be killed and then they'll be resurrected in three and a half days. But this is a nation that will not receive correction. Truth has perished and been cut off from their mouth. You don't hear very much truth today. And in Proverbs 12, Verse number 15. Proverbs 12, verse 15. 
The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. That's why I like one of these uh, other translations. I think it's a living Bible. Anyway, it says, if you can take correct, corrective criticism, you're headed for the wise man's howl of fame. Well, that's true. Absolutely true. Luke 16, 15. Luke 16, 15. Here we find this young man who went out and, as we often heard the expression, sowed his wild oats. And he blew all of his inheritance and he ended up having to feed the hogs in the neighboring country. And so we read here in um, um, verse number 15, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he was sent him out to the fields to feed swine and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, reality hit him. He finally was able to see the real facts. He's like a lot of people today. They, they have a dream world, and they have an idea of what they think the world is like, and what they would like it to be, but they, they, they're not, unable to really see what the real world is like, and their part in it. So this fellow, when coming to himself, he said, how many times in my, my father's hired service, someone's had bread enough to spare, and I perish with his hunger. Now he had a real change of heart, but it, it, took, it took a lot of, uh, of correction before he was willing to uh, recognize that he was at fault, and he had to learn the hard way. And that's the way human beings are. It just seems like they're unable to learn the easy way. They always have to learn the hard way. Proverbs 29, verse number 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Can't do anything for him. There's only one, one fate that's going to await someone like that. So you see, when we refuse correction and justify ourselves, that's a great hindrance to being able to prevail uh, and make it into God's kingdom. Now the next one here is in what I would call every wind of doctrine. When uh, the church was growing in its uh, golden era, it was in the 60s. And um, it was absolutely the largest kind of Judeo-Christian movement the world had seen in 2,000 years. And uh, the sea sites were um, harboring more than 100, 115, 120,000 people. And it was quite common at a, a feast site to have anywhere between 10, 12, 15,000 people at a feast site. And uh, the situation today is what? I guess there's somewhere between four and 500 now different groups that are a result of what happened in the 1973 and 1974 and 75. Every wind of doctrine is out there. Now, where's the truth? Is the truth important? Well, I can tell you, your life's going to depend on it. Now, here's what Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 4. Ephesians 4, verse 4. Uh, verse 14, actually. 
Yes, he said. He said he gave the ministry, and the reason he gave it was for the to uh, to bring the the, the, the members to a, to a mature man to the stature measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then verse fourteen, that we no longer should be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Every wind of doctrine. Okay, they're prolific out there. You can find them anywhere. So it's uh, it's important for you to realize that there's only one truth. Truth is not plural. And uh, as I can point out here in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, what does it say? A little leaven leavens a whole lump. Doesn't take very much. You tolerate one thing, and then you're going to find out later down the line you'll tolerate something else, and then you'll tolerate something else, and then it'll begin, you'll just begin to be watered down. That's the consequences of it. So uh, let's notice Romans 16, verse 18. Romans 16, 18. Those who are such, he says, they're those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. And you better avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. And by smooth, smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Some of these, uh, some of these people, I can tell you, they're very, very efficient, effective speakers. But just because man, some man is an effective speaker, doesn't mean he has the truth. So that's what we better realize here. Second Timothy four verses three and four. We're living in this time period. If this, if this is not the time period, I don't know when it is. Because it says here in 2 Timothy 4, verse number 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I saw that begin to set in in 1971. That's when the chink really began to be cut, be cut into the armor of the church. Precipitated, first of all, by the prophetic failure that occurred in 1972. That set the stage for all of the, the doubting and the wondering, and then the chink began to really appear in 1971, 72, and 70. That's when I saw it. I saw ministers in other churches, areas that I knew of, who were already beginning to deviate. And they did. And uh, some of those men are very effective speakers. But you better realize it. It's not the effectiveness of speaking. It's whether or not the truth is there. That's what counts. That's the only important thing. They will uh, heap to themselves, having, te uh, having, having itching ears, and they will heap to themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears from the truth and be, be turned aside to fables. Stories, uh, tales, legends, uh, myths, uh, like, you know, uh, Easter and uh, Christmas are just fine. That's what's going on all over the place, depending, of course, on the particular group. And there are plenty of them out that you can make a choice on. Now, what's another problem? Well, I saw this come up back in 1973, 74, and 75 when the church began to fall apart. There were any number of those that I spoke with and I knew personally who decided to stay there because they had family and friends and the people they didn't want to give up. They were what? Socially oriented. They were more interested in the social aspect than anything else. And it happened. It happened plenty of times. 
Isaiah, here's what God says. You see, you want to look at what's, what's, uh, what the, the uh, nitty-gritty is in the matter of having to obey God or not, and uh, whether you're going to begin to think soberly. I'll have a little more to say about that later on, but here, here we read in Isaiah 22, verse number 12. In that day the Lord called the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and for girding the sackcloth. But instead, well, if that wasn't called for when that church began to fall apart back there in the 70s, instead, joy and gladness. I remember one man, I never knew him personally because he came in after I did. A lot of these men I don't know anymore. <laughs> But um, I was looking at a website the other day on uh, an announcement by a Worldwide Church of God where they had given a list of all the ministers who no longer were with them. And I went down that list, and there was man after man after man that I knew, and knew some of them very well. They're no longer with it. And one man, later on, they, he, he became a sort of a, a bigwig down there after everything had changed, and uh, they had accepted all these uh, uh, mainstream doctrines, and uh, he bragged to his mother-in-law, he said, I'm proud to be in an organization that's willing to admit it's wrong and change and accept mainstream Christianity. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder how proud he's going to be when he loses his job and he's out working on the workforce. And that's exactly what happened. A few years later, he was working in a furniture store. Last I heard, he joined uh, some Protestant denomination and they ordained him. Now he's a, quote, Protestant minister who keeps Sunday. Absolutely pathetic. Uh, they were more interested in, in position, more in, in office, and in, the, in the social standing they had in their friends than they were in the truth. Luke 17, verse number 26. As, and this is certainly a, a, a reflection of the time period in which we're living today. It says here, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. What is the, what is the primary interest? They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. They wanted to just live their lives, have a good time, and that was, that, that's what they lived for. Is that certainly a proclivity in today's world? I'd say one of the things that uh, Americans are obsessed with is, is, is consumer goods. Money and consumer goods. Just to have this and have that. And of course you have Wall Street advertisers pouring it on day and night over the TV. And uh, you watch a program and how many ads are you going to hear on it? Buy this and buy that and it just goes on endlessly. And uh, you know, they would, let me tell you something. They would not be running those ads if they were not effective. Even subconsciously. People respond to them. They go down downtown and uh, they, they want to purchase a certain item and they, they don't remember. Then all of a sudden they remember that ad. Yeah, this I can get this one. It's the way it works. So that's why they do it. And Americans are just obsessed with these material possessions and things they can have. And I can tell you that that's a very destructive thing. In fact, um, in the latest article I wrote on the subject of immorality, it's uh, on the website right on the home page the fruits of immorality, and I was uh, quoting a large section there from a rabbi, a leading rabbi, 
who was stating in there that one of the reasons, I didn't mean not be the only reason, but one of the reasons that such a failure in families today is the parents are so concerned about all these material things they want to possess, they don't even want to have children. They don't want to be burdened with children. They, they, they want to have a good time and have everything they can possibly have. And it's, it's destroying the American family. And there's no, uh, there's the, the relationship that used to exist between families no longer exists. So these things can be very, very destructive. Uh, Luke 8, verse 14. Luke 8, verse 14. Here's an example of, of, of those who did not prevail. What does it say? This is one category of them. What does it say? They're the ones who fell among thorns, and there are those when they have heard, they go out and they're choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. Riches and pleasures of life. And over-concern about the cares of the world. Sure, we all have problems and difficulties in one way or another. But uh, if we keep our eyes on Christ, then he will see us through. And that's, that's the important thing to remember. Ecclesiastes 7. Stop and think about the seriousness of life. Because I tell you, it is a very, it, it's a very serious, very serious thing to be born as a human being, to have life, to have consciousness, to be aware of reality around us, and then to be called to the knowledge of the truth and lose out. The opportunity gone. So that's why we need to realize that every single working and living day we have in this life is an important day. Now here's what you read in Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 2. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Sorrow, verse 3, is better than laughter. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So there, there is a real purpose and, and sincerity in life, and that's what we all, must all be aware of. It's not a light thing. It's a very serious thing because it's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. All right, now here's another one. Too busy. Too busy with our pursuits and the things we're doing and making money or making a living, whatever the case may be, or involved in this or involved in that, we don't have any time for God. You cannot afford to, have, to, to, to not have time with God. You cannot afford it. Because that's the most important thing you can be doing in life. Luke 9, verse number 59. Luke 9:59. This is a good example here because Christ certainly laid this out so we could all see it plainly. Here was this young man that wanted to become one of Jesus' disciples. Remember that? And Jesus actually wanted him. I guess you could see a certain quality in him that, that uh, would have been valuable and, uh, and, and he wanted him. And so here, here's what he said. Foxes have holes. Well, the man it happened to see as he, as he journeyed on the road, someone said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said, now he didn't say to, I'm not interested in you. He said, if, if you're going to follow me, then here's what, here's what, it, this is what your lifestyle is going to be. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he wanted him to think of the price that was going to have to be paid. And then another said, follow me. And he said, Lord, Jesus said to him, follow me. So he was inviting him to come along. He said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Now, that was not a little simple thing that was done in one day's time. That was a rather involved ceremony and involved a, a, a period of time of, of mourning and all that and, and would have taken some period of time. That's why Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. See, the dead who are, who are actually dead physically are being buried by those who are dead spiritually. In this present era, it's not talking about the finality. It's only talking about those who are called and who are not called in this life. And so as he says here, go with me, let the dead bury the dead, and go with me. Uh, we don't know what the outcome of it was, whether the man did or not, but he's, he's, he's showing here the importance of realizing that you cannot have anything that's too busy to have a relationship and to serve God in whatever capacity God has called you for. Matthew uh, 22, and uh, this one is even, I think, uh, more detailed and gives another example here of what's involved. Matthew 22 and uh, verse number 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So he's referring to the marriage supper. And uh, he sent out servants and tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cat are kill cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. They made light of it. They didn't realize what the stakes were. One to his farm and another to his business. See, they had their own things to do, and they were just too busy to take time off, off for God, didn't they? Now, notice how, how this is explained here in Luke 14, beginning here in verse number 16. Luke 14 and verse 16. A certain man gave a great summer, a supper and invited many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are ready. But they, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and need to take care of it. And uh, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I, I cannot come. Too busy. I had a man tell me one time, a number of years ago, he said, I'm just too busy for God in my life. Now, he's an elderly man, not in good health, probably has a very limited time to live, and I'm wondering what he's thinking now about God. You know, we talk about deathbed repentances. 
I would be very dubious is there such a thing as a deathbed repentance. There are those who are eleventh hour laborers called in at the eleventh hour, but that still have an hour to go, see. But a deathbed repentance is is very questionable. So uh, the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the fields and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you, that none of these men who were invited shall taste of my supper. So if you're called, and you, know, you have a knowledge of the truth, you better take it seriously, because it is a serious matter. Matthew 16, verse number 28. Matthew 16, 28. Uh, 24, I should say. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, here's what's required. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, Whatever price you may have to pay, you better be willing to pay it. For whosoever desires to save his life, he puts that first. He's going to lose it. And whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because he's talking about eternal life there. So one must never be too busy for God. Now the last one. People who are really not earnest have a serious handicap. They're not earnest. They may have grown up in the truth. They may have accepted it from childhood. But it's sort of just an inherited thing to them. And, and, the, and the zeal and the drive and the earnestness is not there. Notice Psalm 119, verse 20. Uh, verse 120. Psalm 119, Verse 120. This, this shows you how the psalmist felt. And uh, the reason this is here is because it shows the kind of attitude uh, that is um, really acceptable to God. Because when we're talking about God, we're not talking about some human being or even some high exalted human being. We're talking about a being that's so powerful and so unbelievable that uh, if, if we saw God... And we looked on God as he now appears, we would be killed immediately. And we read the angels are up there and they just uh, are praising and singing God and bowing down before him. So what are we dealing with here? I don't think any of us have the concept of God we really ought to have. Because here's what he said. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. Uh, you better have respect for God's judgments because God has set in motion an invisible spiritual law and that law automatically carries a penalty. You do wrong and you're automatically going to get the consequences of it. He does not have to sit in his throne like the deacon you used to walk around in the old churches with a stick and as somebody was nodding in church, he'd tap him on the head to wake him, wake him up. He doesn't have to do that. That law he has set in motion automatically does that. And this is why he, what he's really saying here, he was very concerned about living according to what God required of him. 
because he didn't want to suffer the consequences. In 161, my heart stands in awe of your word. How many people really respect God's word like that today and they read it and they really believe it and they're going to pay attention to it? Or are one of these other hindrances going to get in the way? Self-interest? Self-will? Too busy? You name it. That can certainly be a hindrance. You know, you read here, we've, we're all familiar with this text here. And I don't think we can read it enough. Because it says here, Isaiah 66 and verse 2, This is the one God says to whom I will look. You want... You want God's help and God's attention? This is the one he says. To him who is of a poor and a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. How do you view the Bible? Do you read it uh, just to approve an argument? Or do you read it because uh, you're, you're, you've been told you're supposed to read it? Or do you read it because you realize you're reading the words of the living God? You know, I've said many times, this is true, the, the, the fundamental basic Bible that is used in the English-speaking world and it is a masterpiece still to this day is the King James Version. However, it's written in, our, in, in almost what we would call archaic English. It was written in 1611, 400 years ago. Language changes since that time. Not necessarily the meaning of the words, but the pronunciation and things of that nature. And if you, read, if you read passages in the King James Version and then read them in some of these more modern ones, you'll find out it just really opens the understanding much better. Uh, are these modern ones uh, that reliable? I can tell you this. Whenever there's a question that comes up between what some modern version says and the King James Version says, I always take the King James over it. Why? Because it's based on the received text. The reason I use this new King James Version is because it is a, also based on the received text. And it's very, very similar in every way. They just modernize English with what the original English was in the King James Version. And when you read that word, and if you read it in a modern version, particularly if, you, if you're going to go through your Bible with your children, you ought to use a modern, more modern version. But just keep the King James there in case there's any check. Now, there are some that are not really new versions at all. They're paraphrases, but they can be very helpful. And whenever I look at a paraphrase, I compare it with the original. If I have to, I'll check the, the Greek and the Hebrew text and to see that it's accurate enough. But sometimes they're just really outstanding in how they can make it clear. That would that, be big help to anybody who really, who really is interested in reading the Bible and learning what God's Word really says and learning to appreciate it and tremble before it. 1 Peter 4, 7. 1 Peter 4, 7. Here's the admonition. Peter wrote this in his day, but you know these scriptures were written for our time too. They carry right on down. And what does it say here? Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. How soon? I do not know. But I can certainly know we're living in the last days. And how much time we have left, I don't know. But I can say this, you better be prepared regardless. You better be prepared every day. You could be driving down the road and uh, roll a vehicle over and be thrown out and killed too. It happens every day. 
Are you going to be ready that day to meet your maker? You'd better be. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And in Philippians 2, verse number 2. Philippians 2, verse 2. Uh, verse 12, rather. Philippians 2 and verse 12. The responsibility of your calling depends on you. It's just like a child, you know. You can have a child and you can rear them in a certain way and you can teach them the Bible principles and that, and that kind of thing. And then when they get up, grow up as, as older adults, who's going to be responsible for their conduct? They are. When they become adults, they're going to be accountable themselves. And that's exactly what we're reading here when Paul wrote, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there you go. See, I'm talking about prevailing. As we read back here in Luke 21 and verse number 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may prevail to escape and to stand before the Son of Man. You know what that means? That means whether or not you're accounted worthy in God's eyes is going to depend on what you do and depends on what you do now in your life. 